Welcome back to another episode of That's Business. Today's guest is a founding board member of the Coffin-Cyrus Syndrome Foundation, which provides support and research for families affected by the rare genetic condition that his daughter Ella has. He and his wife Sarah are passionate disability advocates. Benji is a live music enthusiast and channels his passion into running music programs for young adults at the Friendship Circle of Michigan. In his professional life, he is a VP and commercial real estate broker, where he has helped hundreds of businesses and investors all over Detroit buy, sell, and lease commercial property. Benji, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast since we had issues with our first recording, but we love technology, don't we? Twice is a charm. It is. It is. So I want to start because you have so much part of you and your bio does not even give all the depth to what you have going on in your life. But breaking down everything and for those of you listening, how I came into contact with Benji, the Resume Rescue team and I heard you speak and give your TEDx talk, which was incredible. So I want to start there. What was it like kind of giving that TEDx talk? What went into it? And how were you feeling being on stage? That's a great question. First off, thank you for having me. Uh, It's super cool to be here. The TEDx opportunity was totally unexpected. Uh, The TEDx team reached out to me and said that they had been seeing the videos that I post about Ella and the information that I put out there about Ella and asked me if I would consider giving a talk. And I was like, sure, I'm not sure anybody wants to hear what we have to say. And they said, well, what do you want to say? And um, I really want to focus on the idea of how we use music to enhance Ella's nonverbal communication skills. Communication skills are something that I, both in my professional life and in my personal life, I find to be an important thing to spend time working on. And so I wanted to really talk about what that looks like. And so as I sort of outlined what we were going to do and how it was going to come about, I needed like 30 or 40 minutes <laughs> to do it. And uh, TEDx talks are eight minutes. And so we really needed to edit that down and edit it down and edit it down. And what we got was the most poignant points of Ella's evolution in her speech. And hopefully we're not at the end of the evolution of her speech, but how we were able to take uh, very basic music skills and turn those into very basic communication skills so that she's able to communicate with strangers and us uh, without using words. Now, can you give a breakdown because you explained it so incredibly with what exactly coffin Cyrus syndrome is and kind of your journey, if you feel comfortable sharing that, of learning that Ella had it or what was it like when she was born and everything? Yeah. So coffin Cyrus syndrome is a rare genetic mutation that duplicates in utero as genetic mutations do, but it causes structural defects in the brain. When I say rare genetic mutation, rare, I believe is defined as I'm going to double check this. I got to fact check myself, but I think it's uh, an occurrence of one in 10,000 is considered a rare disease. When we found out about Ella's condition, uh, there was 350 known cases in the world. Today, there's about 500 known cases in the world. A lot of that is because genetic testing has gotten better in the last five or six years, not because there's more kids being born with it, but really it's 20 years ago. Cuff and Cyrus was diagnosed just 
by doctors who knew what it was, who were able to see visual cues, main one being short pinky fingers, um, soft or lack of fingernails and pronounced body hair. Today, there's genetic testing that is able to confirm if somebody has it or not. Um, Coffin Sayer syndrome, other than short pinky fingers, doesn't really have any special needs, uh, you know, one specific box that every kid has. Uh, it's a little bit of a Chinese menu uh, with what the conditions are. And there's probably 15 things that people get and any kid or any person with Cuff and Cyrus will get a combination of those 15. It might be three, it might be five, it might be seven. So for example, my daughter Ella has a genesis of the corpus callosum, so ACC. Uh, the corpus callosum is the main bridge that connects the right and the left side of the brain. Uh, a genesis means that it never developed, so she's missing that bridge. Uh, she also has a rare liver disorder called cavernous transformation of the portal vein. Um, and she's also got something called cyclical vomiting syndrome. Uh, those are three of about seven. Those are the main issues that she has. But other kids have seizures. Other kids, you know, need feeding tubes. She doesn't have those issues. And so there's this, you know, sort of combination of issues that come up. But the main thread that sort of ties those together is that coffin Sayers syndrome causes structural defects in the body. And so where those structural defects show up and how they show up and how they manifest can be unique, a unique combination in each person who has it. Jeez. So how did that turn into starting the coffin Cyrus syndrome foundation? So to rewind for a moment, when my wife was pregnant with Ella and we were, she was 20 weeks pregnant, we found out that Ella had a genesis, the corpus callosum. And the doctor said to us, don't Google anything. Don't Google ACC. Don't Google any of this stuff. Whatever you're going to find is bad information. So being... <laughs> who I, I went home and immediately Googled like anybody would do. Of course. Right. Yes. And what I found was scary stuff. It was, you know, medical uh, journals that was scary information. And so I just, I said, uncle, I'm done. I'm not Googling it. And we spent the next four, almost five years basically alone with the assumption that we were the only people who we would ever meet who had this condition and it was lonely, it was scary, and there was uh, a real um, uh, emotional deficit in our life because we, we were so isolated in this world of agenesis of the corpus callosum. And um, my sister actually was talking to somebody that she worked with, and those words came up, and the guy said, oh, is, are they members of the foundation? And she said, what foundation? He said, the National Association for the Disorders of the Corpus Callosum. And she goes, what are you talking about? And the guy gave her the information and my sister called me and said, did you know that there's a Facebook group? And I was like, there was a Facebook group. I would have found it already. And I was wrong because I looked it up and there was a Facebook group. Oh, wow. And uh, I joined that and immediately our world opened up. We found other families who had similar conditions and similar issues and similar problems. And there was all these people who had problem solved stuff that we didn't know how to problem solve, but it wasn't because they were geniuses. It's because they were using each other's synergy to ask questions and get answers and figure out solutions. And, and that's what community building is. Uh, and so we dove headfirst into participating in the NODCC and about a year and a half later, we got the diagnosis from the geneticist about 
Coffin-Syrus syndrome. And, you know, we were floored. The biggest practical issue for us in getting that diagnosis is because our medical system is so complex. Every time a doctor would say, you have another issue, but they're not related. And I said, it's impossible that we have all these issues that are not related. And when we got the diagnosis of CSS, everything is now related because it all falls under the umbrella of CSS. I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, but this was life-changing for us because now everything is a part of the problem and everything's a part of the solution. We found out that there had been a 25 or 30 families who were getting together in Seattle and they were going to do this conference. And we got on a plane, we flew to Seattle and we, we had just like a few months prior found out about CSS and we were talking to all these families who had the same problems as us and it was the same combinations or similar combinations. And it was absolutely life-changing. And so a couple of families got together and said, we have to start a proper foundation and make sure that there is education and community and community building and access to information and just, you know, both for the kids to communicate and get good stuff uh, from each other and the parents. And so we have parents panels, we have mom specific groups, we have dad specific groups, we have sibling specific groups. And um, it's pretty amazing to see my daughter, Ella, there's a little girl in Brooklyn, New York named Maeve, who you would swear that they're twin sisters. They look alike, they sound alike. When they laugh, it's the same laugh. It's, it's absolutely great to see them play together. We have a, an adult advocacy panel, self-advocacy panel. So young adults with Coffin Cyrus can participate in board membership and participate in the conference events and do so. And we, you know, we, we really want to make sure that the community building side of, of what we have is more than just, you know, recipe sharing. And that happens, but it's really about uh, enriching the lives and making sure that when somebody gets a diagnosis, and they Google coffin Cyrus syndrome, where they Google agenesis of the corpus callosum, they find good information. And how scary is that? And first of all, I would have done the same thing of Google. Don't tell me not to do something because that's the first thing I want to do is do <laughs> it, right? But it's so impactful because you never think about what someone's going to Google. I mean, any health issue, whether you're an adult, a kid or parent trying to figure out what's wrong with your kid. I mean, how great that is to just alleviate that little bit of stress or huge amount of stress, I should say there. Forgive me. I want to just give you one, one more piece. So do it. probably 2017, 2018 or so, the Friendship Circle of Michigan, which we are huge advocates for the Friendship Circle of Michigan. We pretty much don't say no to them when they ask us for stuff. Amazing. They were building a blog and they were trying to find content for the blog. And they said, Benji, will you write articles? I'm like, nobody wants to hear what I have to say. <laughs> and what I realized was I didn't want other families, when they Googled a genesis of the corpus callosum, to not find good information. So I wrote, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe, you know, six, 10 blog posts, something like that, uh, for the Friendship Circle of Michigan, specifically talking about a genesis of the corpus callosum and Coffee syndrome, so that when people Google, uh, they would find good information. And I still get messages, emails, whether it's from my email or through social media, I get probably, you know, once or twice a month, I get somebody reaching out, hey, I read that post. I need resources. I need information. Can you help me? And, and it's really easy to point them in the right direction today. That's incredible. Now, something I want to also talk about because, and anyone, please, please, please watch Benji's TED Talk, which will be in the show notes if you're looking. But 
your communication style with Ella because it's so unique that you use music. And for those of you that can't see his background, he's got, I don't know, about eight guitars in his background or different styles and everything. And just so cool that music is a big piece of you. But talk to me on how you developed your communication style that you and your family use with Ella. It's a great question. And I I wish I could tell you that it was very intentional and well thought out, but it's a lot of trial and error and it's a lot of taking direction from Ella. So pretty much whatever she's into or down with or willing to do, that's what we're going to focus on. And the truth is a huge part of communication is just listening, right? Is just making sure that what the other person is putting out, you're able to receive and interpret. And so not to sort of give away the TED talk, but, you know, it started out with Ella dancing along to music and enjoying music. And we said, great, if you're going to dance, we're going to play more. Uh, And she did. And then one day we found that she was clicking dominoes and and blocks and uh, Jenga pieces together. And we realized that she was tapping syllables of almost like her own personal Morse code and the ability to understand you know, what she was saying through uh, syllables. And she still uses those syllables to identify people. We, we know if she says syllables in a certain way. So when she holds her hands like this, like the Italian or the Israeli, wait a minute. <laughs> yep. So she says, Aunt Leia, it's three syllables. We know that that's my sister Leia. And when she says Aunt Devora, that's four syllables like that. And if she does an open hand, she says Aunt Miriam. Uh, or Aunt Miriam's house. It's the same four syllables, but because she did a different hand gesture, we know the difference between my sister Miriam and my sister Devore, even though they're both four syllables. And so there's an evolution there and it's very intuitive. It's not complex, but if, if you as a stranger to her sat down for 10 minutes and tried, you'd be able to communicate with her. And if you stayed for the week Right. If you spend a couple of days at our house, by the second or third day, you could have conversations with her because you begin to understand what she's trying to say and how she says it. And it's interesting, you know, you, you see like people going to another country and trying to communicate with somebody who doesn't speak the language. And you think if they say it slower and like they're an idiot, <laughs> they'll understand. Ella is significantly more sophisticated than that. She doesn't say it slowly. She gives you signs and gestures and sounds and gives you the information that you need to try to understand her without using words. Now, how has this developed? Obviously, as she gets older, that she, I mean, like any child's progression is they learn more words, they understand more of the world and they become more sophisticated. But how has that developed as she's even continuing to grow and learning and everything like that? I mean, I know she's now 11, but how is that transition, I guess, in her earlier stages of development? Well, the answer is we don't, I, I don't know what the full continuum is going to look like because she's only 12, right? And so I can tell you from, you know, when she was three or four when communication started to today, I can tell you how it's evolved. And, you know, for a long time, the communication was as basic and caveman-like. And I say that with love and affection, not not as an insult, but it was as basic as if she wanted, you know, the pretzels that she likes, she would take your hand, pull you off of the couch, walk over to where we keep the pretzels and point, right? 
That's effective communication. It's not speech, but that's effective communication. Today, she eats a ton of turkey, right? She eats approximately a pound of turkey a day. It's absurd. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But she holds up her hand like this and does tea in sign language for turkey. That's very effective nonverbal communication. If you asked somebody who spoke ASL, they would say, I don't know what she wants. She's just saying the letter T. But the context of knowing that every time she says T, she's asking for turkey, that's language. It's like for the first time, maybe two months ago, I was in a real estate meeting in, in a professional setting and I said something and a young broker said bet. And I was like, whoa. I'm officially old enough that when a young person uses slang, I'm shocked. Now I'm young enough to know what he meant when he said that, right? I'm not that old. I knew what he meant. But when I say bet and when he says bet, they mean two different things. The context and the evolution of language allows us to understand that. And so her ability to just say T for Turkey, you know, she has a bat mitzvah coming up on February 5th couple of weeks and we try to show her B M and she can't get the B quite right, but she does the M. And so, you know, M for bat mitzvah. And I'm like, she knows what she's talking about. And, uh, you know, for a long time it was scary. We didn't know whether or not she was going to be able to communicate like that. And the fact that she's growing into that is pretty, pretty spectacular. Now I love that you've not only being a special needs advocate, You have so much. I mean, we could have five podcast episodes to encompass every facet of your career and all the greatness you've done for anyone from lots of different walks of life. But you also are someone that we had talked about, I believe, previously that not only for special needs advocacy, but you also have been a big proponent of bringing life to Detroit and developing different retailers and everything there. So I want to briefly talk about this even more. But why was Detroit kind of your, it has been your center focus more on like the real estate side of what you do? It's a great question. When I, I started my commercial real estate career in 2009, uh, and I was lucky enough to be a part of a team that was representing Dollar General at the time. We were doing Dollar General deals around the metro area and nobody really wanted to go to Detroit. And I was like, I'll do it. And there are still commercial real estate brokers who pride themselves on the fact that they don't go south of eight mile. And I found that silly. And in 2010, 2011, 2012, um, you know, doing neighborhood real estate in the city of Detroit was tough, but I was happy to do the work. I felt privileged to be so young in my career and have the ability to work on such a significant account. And as I was kind of running around the city of Detroit, seeing beautiful buildings and an enormous amount of potential and, you know, hardworking, real people who needed real service. And there's a lot of trash that can be talked about Dollar General as a company or Family Dollar or Dollar Tree for that matter, right? But that sort of corporate dollar store that's killing the grocery store, we can talk about that for another hour. But (laughs) yes. We were bringing services to places that didn't have them otherwise. And, you know, I started paying attention to the politics. I started paying attention to the people. And I was seeing people saying stuff like Detroit is a blank slate. And I was like, for a blank slate, there's a lot of people and a lot of buildings. Yes, exactly. A lot of people who've been here for a long time. And then I started hearing people say, when you say blank slate, 
that's an insult to the fact that my great-grandfather owned a home in Detroit and my grandfather owned a home in Detroit and my father owned a home in Detroit and I own a home in Detroit. And how is your business opportunity, you know, my blank slate? And in saying that, I, I just wanted to be a part of the positive movement uh, that was happening there. And so I just, I doubled down and I focused a lot of my energy in the city of Detroit. And if you take a look at any given year in the last 12 or 13 years, anywhere from a third to two thirds of my business has been on an annual basis in the city of Detroit, depending on the year. But I've been very lucky to help both large, you know, national companies come into the city and small business owners who may not have gotten another shot from another landlord or another broker or something like that, help them get open for business. I'm, I'm very proud of that. Now, I remember, I believe we had talked about this before and I don't want to butcher it, but I believe it was with Detroit Shipping Company where you gave someone a chance that other people had not. So tell us the story because it was it still resonates with me and it's one of my favorite stories I've ever heard. Yeah, so um, Detroit Shipping Company in Midtown is a fantastic business. I'm friends with most of the people involved, and uh, they asked me to help them put that development together, and I was happy to oblige. And when we were doing the leasing, I got a phone call from Chef Genevieve, Chef G as she lovingly refers to herself, and uh, she asked me, you know, we could talk about the opportunity and we sat down and we talked and, you know, I love her. She, there's a language barrier there. And if you're not paying attention, if you're not actively listening, she can be difficult to understand, but I wanted to see her get open for business. And so I put in the time and put in the work and we got her space leased and her daughter came to the lease signing and said, I want to let you know that I'm, I'm here for two purposes. Number one, not that I don't trust that you printed the execution copy that you sent, but I want to make sure that the documents that we're signing are the documents that we believe that we are signing. I said, you know, trust, but verify. I got no problem with that. She said, the other reason why I came is I want to let you know that my mother's been trying to find a space to open up this business in Detroit for the last couple of years. And every time she calls a broker, they hear her accent and they hang up on her. And you're the first person who took the phone call met with her and took the time to get something done with her. And that is a uh, black mark on the record of the commercial real estate industry. And hopefully as younger people come into the business, that type of thing happens less and less. And hopefully we can get to a point where that doesn't happen at all. But Chef G got a James Beard nomination for the food that she makes out of a 180 square foot shipping container kitchen. Uh, it's absolutely spectacular. And um, when people ask me what, what my favorite deal ever, it's definitely in the top three. I probably made less on that one than I have on others because it was a tiny deal and I'm not complaining. I'm pointing out the fact that the reason that's one of my favorite deals that I ever did is not because of the financial gain, but because of the impact that that made. I think we've talked about this before, but people that are non-native English speakers, that they are left out of so many conversations or, you know, we want to have the diversity and we want to have all these nice restaurants, but a lot of people want the whitewash version of them. Like you want people that have this unique background that do deserve a chance, that do everything. And 
good for you for saying that. I worked in recruiting and the same situation would happen. Oh, I can't pronounce their name. I'm not calling them. Or "Mm, they have too heavy of an accent. I'm not going to hire them. It's like, why would you not want to bring more diversity and understanding different cultures? I think that there's been numerous people that I've met over the years whose names I couldn't pronounce. Mm -hmm. And the ability to just say, Forgive me if I mispronounce this. Can you tell me if I'm pronouncing this right or wrong? By the way, my last name is Rosenzweig, you know, <laughs> and and I can give you a long list of ways that people have butchered my last name. Right. And I think most people appreciate when you ask them how to pronounce their last name. You know, it means that you care and you're paying attention. Right. I mean, mine's pronounced Bucciolato and it looks nothing like it's spelled and pronounced the way it's spelled, but it's it's the same thing. It's just you come at it at respect. I mean, you don't I don't know everything about all there is to know about things in the world, nor do you, but it's just you come at things from a respectful place. And why would I love learning? I love learning about different industries. I love learning about different cultures. And it's just why not just start, like you said, forgive me if I mispronounce or can you please tell me how that is? I mean, it takes two seconds. So Mm-hmm. Maybe we just need to have a series on different topics we need to cover, Benji. I don't know. I'm in. There we go. This is great. Now, you have so many other facets of you. With the holidays that happen and all the different unique holidays that are celebrated, now, Menor in the D, I feel like, has even blown up more. So I want you to talk about your role in bringing that to Detroit. I was asked to help the synagogue that my wife and I belong to participate in and we got married there and our, you know, kids had their life milestones there. So that synagogue in West Bloomfield asked me to help them produce a Hanukkah party. And I said, no. And they said, well, you don't normally say no to us. Why'd you say no? And I said, Hanukkah is such a difficult time to get people to come out to events between Christmas parties and Hanukkah parties for people's work, their parents, their in-laws, their kids' friends, their kids' friends' parents, you know, the neighborhood event. There's only seven nights and most people have to do something or they're just busy. And so unless you're going to do something that's really special and different, I don't want to do an event that the same 50 or 75 people to come to all your events go to. And they said, well, what would you consider special and different? And this was, again, 2010, maybe 2011, something like that. And I said, what would be special and different? I said, I don't know. Off the top of my head, why don't you uh, find uh, somebody who does ice sculptures and let's build a 10-foot ice sculpture in Campus Martius and um, do it in Detroit and do something special and different. The reason I said that was because I was giving them something to say no to, (laughs) right? I didn't want them to say yes. Just tell me now. And the rabbi said, great, here's a budget, go figure that out. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I sort of backed myself into a corner. And so we did, and we had pretty modest expectations. Our expectation for the first year was to have 300 people. That was the goal. Uh, and we had about 600, 650 people come the first year. Wow. We were like, oh my God, this is incredible. For the second year, we said, at this point, we don't want a temporary menorah. We want something that's permanent. And so we got a hold of Eric and Israel Nordine from the Detroit Design Center, and they built a 26-foot glass and steel piece of art. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with the Detroit Design Center, their stuff is art and their sculptures. 
And so they built a very unique menorah. It's 26 feet tall. And uh, we put that up. Our goal was to have a thousand people. And we had about 1,500, 1,800 people come in year two. And we're like, oh my God, this is insane. And every year it built up. And by year four or five, we were hanging out in that four to 5,000 person range. Every year we have between four and 5,000 people. And we've got some wild stories of, you know, things that happened there. And one year the city was doing a test on the electric system in Campus Martius. In the middle of the event, all the lights just shut off. And it was like, <gasps> oh, oh my God. No. Yeah. So we figured out really quickly how to, <laughs> all the right person to have the lights turned back on. We've had some fun adventures throughout. But the amazing thing is there's four or five cities in the world that have these public menorah lightings that are considered the the big ones. Um, so it's Moscow, London, Washington, D.C., and Detroit. Wow. And every year, those four cities kind of look and say, who had the largest one this year? But, you know, those are the big four events. Just for accuracy's sake, the reason why New York is not on that list is because on any given night in New York, there's 30, you know, small events, but... There's not one that has four or 5,000 people. When COVID hit in 2020, we were not about to skip doing the menorah lighting. And so we did a menorah lighting that was a virtual event. The only people who were in attendance were the people who were producing the event. And we put it out on Facebook and Instagram and you know, live streamed on YouTube. And we connected with a couple of other organizations and we had 38,000 people log in to watch. 38,000? 38,000 people. So we went from being one of the largest menorah lightings in person to the largest live stream of a menorah lighting with 38,000 people. We were blown away by that. Uh, in 2022, we opened it up and we said, okay, we're going to have 500 people in person. You know, we're still kind of worried about COVID and what that looked like. And so we had 500 people in person We had about it was 15 or 20,000 people log in. Still a pretty significant size menorah lighting. This year, the stream was pretty low key, mainly because people are kind of sick of that. Yes. <laughs> you know, but I, I believe we had somewhere around 1500 people uh, in person. And so it's, it's sort of this like influx hybrid where uh, we had a few thousand, I don't know whether it was, you know, two, three, four thousand people logged in and about 1,500 people in person. So we're just pushing forward and hopefully next year, you know, nobody will remember what the word COVID means and uh, we'll have four or 5,000 people in person again. That's so incredible. And I love that story. And ever since I met you, I just, I kept seeing it on Instagram, on live events, and it just keeps popping up and popping up and popping up. So I wanted to share that story because I didn't know you at you literally were the reason it comes on. So I wouldn't go that far. Well, you had a big part in it. How about that? I'll take that. Fine. Too humble of a man you are, but it's fine. <laughs> um, twenty twenty three. What do we have in store? Oh, it's a lot. So uh, twenty twenty three big year. Hopefully uh, for my real estate business. Um, you know, we got some really cool things happening right now. We've got uh, some cool food and beverage businesses that are working on getting open in Detroit uh, and around the metro area. Got a couple of other tenants that I'm working with that are doing some cool stuff. 
some good stuff happening in the uh, in the real estate world. We've got the buildings that we're selling, some projects that we're helping get together. I'm I'm trying to accurately say that uh, we've got a good year that we're anticipating without uh, breaking any client confidentiality before they set out a press release. But uh, I'd say one of the cool ones to keep an eye on is a company called Breadless. Uh, it's a gluten-free restaurant that opened up on East Jefferson. We helped them get their first store open, and now we're we're working on our two or three new locations to open up in 2023. That's pretty cool. We've got some good stuff cooking for the real estate business. Um, the coffin Sire Syndrome Foundation is doing their annual conference in Boston this summer, so hopefully we'll make it out to Boston and see some friends, and that'll be fun. Put this out there. So after the TEDx talk, a couple of organizations who were in attendance reached out to me and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you and have you come speak to our people. And so I never considered motivational speaking. And I don't really think that the topics that I'm talking about are necessarily, I'm not a motivational speaker. That's not what I'm talking about. But I've written out a couple of curriculums, so to speak, of things that I can speak about to a variety of organizations from sales teams to special needs parents to just community building organizations, talking about communication and how to do that effectively and how to actively listen and how to enhance communications between people. And so I'm hoping to get some interesting gigs this year and talking to somebody the other night about a big corporate event in Alabama and talking to another group in New York and some stuff here in Detroit. So hopefully we'll get that out there and get that part of my career launched this year. Amazing. Well, Benji, my last question for you as we wrap it up, what advice do you have for listeners? Um, so it's funny that the list that you sent me said, I think you asked, what advice would I give the 18-year-old version of myself? And I was thinking about that whole morning. So that's a, that's a very different answer. Or that one. It doesn't matter. Whatever I want to go. There's no rules on this podcast. There's no rules on this podcast. Um, the advice that I'd give the 18-year-old version of myself is that so far, 100% of the fears that I have, I've survived. There's a lot of scary things that happen and we can get through them all. Probably advice I'd give to the, anybody listening to this podcast too. Uh, you know, fear is a liar. So listen to people. If our lips are moving, our ears aren't working. And so listen to people and in the communication cycle, be listening as much as you're talking. Amazing. Well, Benji, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. I'm so happy you came on. I'm excited to see all the great things you do in 2023. And once these retailers start popping up, you know, I'm going to text you and ask if you had anything to do with them because I'm always looking out. But I will let you know. Amazing. Well, and those of you listening, if you want to follow Benji, see all the great things he's doing, head to our show notes for links to his sites and social media and tune in next week for another episode of That's Business. If you're looking for a career change and you're not sure where to start, the Resume Rescue can help. Sure, there's no such thing as the perfect fit for everyone, but here at the Resume Rescue, we're on a mission to find the perfect solution for you. Whether it's changing careers, updating a resume, learning LinkedIn, or practicing interviewing, we have you covered. Find us online at theresumerescue.com and find all of our contact info in our show notes.